Today's guest graduated from Virginia Tech and soon after college went to work for the Secret Service in Washington, D.C. After leaving the White House, she utilized her top secret clearance and accepted a consulting firm role which saw her working with the Department of State, CIA, Counterterrorism Center and other intelligence communities. She's written a book based on her time in the Secret Service titled Talkback Barbie, the Secret Service Edition about a sassy, ambitious, southern blonde debutante who can't keep her mouth shut. Episode 40, Lauren Fernandez. Welcome to One Moment, Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in to bring on the inspiration. Um, how are you doing? Oh, great. I just finished up dinner. That's why I was yeah. like, oh my gosh, am I going to be a few minutes late? Because I was finishing up dinner, cleaning everything oh, up. Oh, no worries. I was like frantically trying to make my coffee. So I was like, scalloped <laughs> out my coffee beforehand because it's still fairly early here in the morning. Well, early. I'm, it's 9 a.m. So it's early for me. I'm, but, I, don't I mean, that's early to get functioning. I'm not going to lie. Well, there's being awake and then there's functioning. I don't really start functioning before 3 p.m. So. Yeah. <laughs> Are you more of a night owl? <laughs> well, it's interesting because when I was doing more of a nine to five job, I was up at 5.30 and in bed by 9.30. But now that I'm not doing so much of a nine to five, um, I resorted back to my uni body clock, which is, yep. yeah, being up really late. And I find that when I edit and everything, I, f- I prefer it at night because it's just so much quieter. There's less distractions. Yep. Um I agree with you. I don't, yeah, like the world's really quiet, so there's there's no reason to procrastinate. I've always been a morning person until the past, gosh, I mean, when I, I guess when I had my son. No, I'm just kidding. But uh, I know I just, I don't, I like to stay up late now and enjoy my evenings just by myself. And then, yeah. but I still have to wake up early to take him to school. So it's 6.30. So I'll go to book club, I'll go to wine club, and I'll be home at like one in the morning and I have to get up at 6.30 to get Oh yeah. See, I can't, I can't do this. If I go to bed late, then I'm waking up later because, but I've got the ability to do that now. Like I have that flexibility. So I'm still getting, you know, if I'm going to bed at 3am in the morning, I'm still getting, I'm still getting seven hours sleep, but it's. Oh yeah. I get an extra hour during the summer. It's nice. It's so nice. (laughs) Love it. Well, congratulations on your new, on your book. I don't know how new it is, but it's Talk Back Barbie, the Secret Service edition, and it's about mm-hmm. your time, well, loosely loosely based on your time <laughs> in the Secret Service, which that is fantastic. Is yeah, what no, I'm super go- excited about it. When did it get published? It got published, so I self-published. It got published at the end of January, so probably January 30th, 31st. Okay, so it's still it's still new then. It's still very new. Yeah, yeah. six months in, so almost yeah. seven. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So how did you end up in the Secret Service? What made you want to go into that area? So when I was 10 years old, I wanted to be an FBI agent. My dad was very persistent and would ask my sister and I every single day, what do y'all want to do when you grow up? What do y'all want to do when you grow up? What do you want to be? What do you want to do with your life? That's a lot of pressure. Yeah. And so he asked us all the time. So you got your typical answers. Oh, a waitress, a teacher, this and that and the other, like we would just come up with things to please him. But he's like, but no, what are you passionate about? What do you want to be? My sister and I are like, I don't know. But I somehow got hooked on the FBI. So I 
got really excited and started reading all these books about the FBI, watching all these shows. I got hooked on CSI, the original Las Vegas CSI, and then all the other CSIs after that. So I was just How old were you at this stage? This teenage years. So 10 was when I decided to be an FBI agent. But then after that, when I decided to do that, I just went full force, meaning I just dived into everything FBI I could think of. Books, movies, all of it. Shows. It's such an unusual thing for for a kid to be like, I want to do an F, like be an F. Like Mm -hmm. normally it's, you know, the careers you were talking about vet, you know, or I don't know, I want to be a business well, person, like FBI I wanted to be a so, vet. <laughs> see, I wanted to uh, be yes. a vet too. My side just went nowhere near where I needed to be. <laughs> exactly. So I found out that actually I had to put animals to sleep and I, yeah. that was what stopped me. But then I yeah. found out like when I went to Virginia tech, I found out that vet school was way harder and I was not cut out to be a vet. <laughs> well, I did. I don't know whether or not you guys have that over there, but we did work, we have work experience. So in year nine, mm-hmm. I don't even know what the equivalent of that is. It's the yeah, it's year nine. You go and spend a week in some sort of a business that you feel that you want to do that career in. It's a bit of, you know, yes. experience, right? Yeah, so, so I we went, have internships. Oh, I have yeah, but it's only for a week. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Okay, yeah. Um, so I went and did it at a vet's and the vet actually said to me, if you love animals, don't become a vet because you just put them down all the time. But if you're doing that day in, day out and you love animals, like it's mm-hmm. got to wear on your soul. Well, um, and going and back to the energy. FBI, that's what I, when I talked to FBI agents, that's exactly what they said. The day-to-day, what they had to deal with, the people that they had to talk to, what they had to do, it wears on you. So you become the skeptical person. You're always looking out for the, the bad in everybody, right? You're investigating all these people. Mm. The minute you see people, it's just... Oh, they're bad. Or you're, you're cautious about everything. Mm. And it, it really makes you think badly of people because that's all you see. All you're around are bad criminals. And so it's really funny that you say that, but it does. It skews your viewpoint of life. Very and I jaded, do think, yeah. Yeah, you're very jaded. And same with going just through Secret Service training. It changes your you mentally and physically, of course, but mentally it really changes you because it makes you a little bit more numb to situations that other people are probably like, oh, what about this? And what about that? And you're just like, oh, you know, that doesn't phase me. Like it doesn't affect me the same way as it does other people. How did you, so you don't know how you became interested in the FBI. You just suddenly became interested in the FBI. There was it was no just something. Yeah. I just went through all these jobs and I discovered that I liked puzzle solving and I liked the action behind the FBI. I liked that they were busy all the time, that they weren't in an office environment, that they got out, they rode in cars to investigate different situations and different scenes. I love that. And that's what I discovered is my forte when it comes to working. I don't do well in a very set office environment. I do really well when I am doing something different all the time. If I have Mm. one task and I'm doing it every single day, day in and day out, I, I do not function very well doing that. But if I have a task that's keeping me busy and making me do different things all the time, that energizes me and keeps me busy. And that's what I discovered that the FBI really did when you're you're involved in all these cases. You stay super busy and you're not always in an office environment. Now, don't get me wrong. You have casework and paperwork and you do have to be in an office environment at times, but not all the time. So how did you move from I want to be in the FBI to I want to be in the Secret Service? 
So because I couldn't get into the FBI right out of college, I needed work experience or military experience. I went, there were only two. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. What work experience do you need? You need at least three years of work experience. It really doesn't matter what work experience, just as long as you have three years of either military, you have uh, anything, pretty much any so law enforcement. So I want you to see a bit of the world and be a bit more mature. Correct. They need to pass yeah. law enforcement experience, military experience, whatever it might be. You have to have at least at a minimum before you apply three years of real life work experience. I didn't have that, obviously. I was just leaving college. So the two company, well, law enforcement companies that allowed you to apply right out of college were the NSA, the National Security Agency, and the Secret Service. But I could only apply to the uniform division of the Secret Service. I couldn't apply to be an agent because you had to have work experience to become an agent with the Secret Service. So there's that side of it too. So the, I was, my goal was to work for the secret service for three years and then apply to be an FBI agent. Obviously that changed a little bit. (laughs) Hence the book. (laughs) So you went straight into being a uniformed, well trained to be uniformed. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what's the difference between an agent and a uniformed Secret Service person. So they both do the same thing. Their mission is to protect the president of the United States, foreign mission branches, all of that. However, the only difference is, is that uniform division, they are stationed specifically in Washington, D.C. So for instance, I manned the White House. So we were in uniform. We protected the White House, VP residence, which is the vice president's residency, and the foreign missions branches. We specifically stayed there in D.C., Agents wore suits and they traveled all over the United States and were stationed all over. They travel internationally. I mean, we can travel internationally as well, but they are the ones that travel, move around a lot more. They do so much more stuff when it comes to traveling. They're not in like a specific spot, if that makes sense, but they have the same so mission. Which one, so which one's more desirable? In Is it like everybody wants to become an agent because they're That's the ones correct. that are... Okay, because they're the ones so, <laughs> that are actually talking into their their yes, their little and, headphones and, and guarding headsets. and guarding the. They're yes. actually standing beside the president. Okay, so that's so we well, right. we'll we can stand by the, the president as well. And we do have the little headsets, but if we're outside, it's more a walkie-talkie type thing. But when you're inside the White House, you do have to wear your headset. So it yeah. is it is it is similar. They do have a lot more positions where they're closer to the president of the United States than we are. We have positions, obviously, where he walks past us but we're not manning him as much. And you have to go to specific agent training. So even if I was uniform division and went to, wanted to become an agent, I would have to go back to federal law enforcement training and get retrained to become an agent. So there's more training involved than just uniform division. So it's more intense. So what was the training like to become a, um, a uniformed person? I was going to say uniform yeah. agent, but you weren't an agent. A uniform no, everyone says that. No, totally fine. So to become uniform division, it, the training was incredible. It was exciting. It was fun. It made your adrenaline just run. And I absolutely loved it. However, for me, the training was a little bit more difficult because I was put in a difficult, difficult situation with a technician who just immediately didn't like me when I joined the secret service. So I had a little bit different experience than a normal trainee would have. Why? Okay, so first of all, 
you've almost um, contradicted yourself that you loved it and it was very exciting and everything, <laughs> and then you're like, Ish, it sucked because I had this awful experience with the technician. So I know. Uh, what was about it? What what? Let's start with what about what? Oh my god, I can't even speak this morning. I haven't what, finished this coffee. What did I love about what, it? Yes, thank you. <laughs> no, well, it's okay. just going well, isn't it? You're asking you your own questions. <laughs> no, you're totally fine. No, I love this. This is so much fun, though. I loved the fact that it was an adrenaline rush. I'm a I'm an adrenaline junkie. I love yeah. to drive fast. I I used to love roller coasters. I don't in the older age, not because I'm scared of roller coasters, but because. I don't like my, my, it jacks up my neck a lot, but oh, I just, okay. I love things that I'm, I, where I'm pushing the limits, nothing illegal limits, but like pushing the limits and where I'm just making my heart race. And that's what training did. So you're shooting guns all the time. You're in these situations where it's dark and you're having to find the assailant and you're having to shoot them and you're having to pass these classes and you're having to run and do all this physical fitness. It was just a constant adrenaline rush. We went through a scenario where we did we did a simulation of a plane crash in a swimming pool and you were trapped in a cage and you got dumped in the swimming pool and you had to escape and get out and come to the top of the water just like if it crashed in the water, if a plane crashed in the water. So what I'm talking about is the adrenaline side of it now. I know I sound like I'm contradicting myself, but the obstacles that were put in front of me by the technician, that that actually gave me an adrenaline rush too. He, he made it really difficult and hard for me. What, what's a but technician? Because technician to me is someone that comes out and fixes so, the aerial on your roof or right. something. <laughs> so the technician, <laughs> so he wasn't like, he wasn't a sergeant or a captain. A technician at training meant that he was an instructor. So he was right. there instructing you with the mat training or he was instructing you with the shooting. This particular t- particular technician was doing the mat training, the physical side of it. So where you would right. have to clear buildings and all that. So they're called technicians. So there's multiple and technicians technicians within your course. That's correct. So there's multiple, okay. te- all men. There were no women ever in my training that were around except for my one girl in my training class. And how many are in your training class in total? You know, how many I cannot students? remember how many were in my training class, maybe 25. There weren't very many okay. of us. And there were only okay. two girls out of all of us. Okay. Yeah. So very. Well, two out of 25 is a, 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 I know it's not a great ratio, but it's a higher ratio than I was thinking, okay, yeah. it'd be like 50 people going through and it would be two, two women going well, through. They so, have okay. classes all the time. So they do. Yeah. So as we might come in for a couple of weeks, another class behind us, some classes have no women. Some classes might have mm-hmm. a couple, but usually when I was going through four was the max maybe. That's it. Why do you think women aren't attracted to the role? My personal opinion and experience, if you, if you're single, I think it's perfect. I think it's a, it's an awesome job. You can travel the world on the government's dime. You can, you meet all these men if you're single. I mean, you're around all these, (laughs) these men all the time. How frowned upon is the relationships within the secret service? Uh, Pretty, yeah. When you go traveling, it's, it's, a lot of cheating. <laughs> there's a lot of that when you go. That's why there's I such a high divorce that, rate. But it's like, you know, yeah. Listen, I laugh about it because it didn't affect me, obviously. I, yeah. I was married. I did, but it it happened to everybody. Every time they would come back from a trip, I heard another story. Somebody cheating on somebody, this and that and the other. Oh, and no. I'm just like, oh, yeah, that doesn't make me too excited. 
So I do think, so if you're a woman and you're married and you're called to be a mom, it takes a very specific person to want to maintain that lifestyle of being a federal law enforcement officer, whether that's FBI, CIA, Secret Service, whatever it might be, if you want to have a family. Now, but you don't know all that stuff though. But you don't know that, what that's like before you go into it though. I knew a little bit. I was because I did talk to FBI agents and Secret Service officers before I went in. But until you experience it firsthand, you really do not understand. Even me telling you this over this podcast, you don't truly understand what you're going through until you go through it. I thought I could handle it. I was like, oh, it's not a big deal. But that's my that's my point. Like, if people don't understand that's the reality of it, why mm-hmm. aren't more women attracted to the career? I don't know. Honestly, oh, okay. my opinion was that I just thought women maybe were called more to different, maybe it's too demanding physically. And it is, it's very, it is very difficult to pass the physical requirements. So maybe that scares them. Maybe it's the type of job scares them with mm. carrying a, hand, a, a weapon all the time. Maybe it's the physical confrontation I think more women are getting interested in the Secret Service than before, but mm. I don't think I don't think it's as exciting to most women. I think people are excited to hear me tell about it, <laughs> but they're not excited to like join the ranks. They're like, well, "Yeah, what you did, I'm not too excited about doing that myself." <laughs> that's because it's such an unusual, like it is an unusual career. But I would say that if you were a guy sitting there going, "That's unusual," you know, unusual well, career. So my dad raised my sister and I like boys. So we, oh, yeah. he wanted, he wanted sons and he raised us like boys. He raised us like sons. So we were the perfect anomaly. So we would dress up, play in makeup, wear my mom's heels, but we love to play outside, get our hands dirty, climb trees, play in creeks, play in mud. We did sports year round. We were, my dad, basically there was no crying in baseball. That's how he raised us. I mean, there's you, you, you hold your emotions in. He gets very uncomfortable yeah. if he sees you crying. He's like, and I'm going to back away from here a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how we were raised. So, I mean, it makes sense that I would go into something like this. <laughs> I just think it's a normal childhood, really. Yeah. Um, what is your dad? What did your dad do? Or does Well, do? what's so funny is he's a CPA, so a certified public accountant. So he's an accountant. And right. what's funny is accountants are, I'm not labeling anybody out there who's an accountant, but I'm just saying they're We're going for the demeanor. stereotype here. It's fun. Yes. Their typical demeanor <laughs> is they're paper people. They love numbers and they're not book, very social. Book smarts. Yes. Oh, super book smart, but yeah. they don't have that social uh, ability. They're not extroverted. Yes. They, they don't. They as, can, a, as a stereotype, yeah. Yes, exactly. They... They sit there and they, they'll they carry on a conversation and you're like, are we talking numbers right now or are we actually having a friendly conversation? <laughs> <laughs> and so that's my dad, but he also is really into sports. Like he's totally sports, sports, sports. So he had girls, so he made sure he raised us like that. Fair enough. It's, it's just a – I was thinking or you'd say, oh, he was a, a police officer or something like right. that rather than a <laughs> – that's what you would think, right? Yeah, yeah. So what was it about the the training that you, because you were saying the adrenaline side of things you loved, but what was it about it that you hated or disliked? Well, just in training or just Secret Service in general? The training side of it. I hate, well, I hated the fact that I was picked on 
my, the, the guys in my training class loved me. They absolutely supported me and tried to be there and be as gentle as they possibly could. I hated the fact that I was picked on, but at the same time, it was a love hate relationship because I, he made me, the technician that hated me made me stronger than I ever could have ever been. If I was given the typical training and I was, and everyone just did everything so gentle because I was a girl, I think it would have been worse for me. I think I would have learned even less than I did. I mean, I learned a lot. I think I just would have kind of coasted through and it would have been so much easier. Whereas he presented so many obstacles for me that, which I hated looking back on it though, I love it because he made me stronger than I ever thought I could be. So, but I hated that it was, I was away from my family. I had six months of training. I was away from my fiance. I was away from who is my husband. Now I was away from my family. I, I missed all holidays. If it was, if it was over, if training was over holidays, so it, that was very difficult for me because I'm a big holiday family person and I love to be around my family and missing that for me was, was really hard. What makes you say that you got picked on? Well, the technician just really, he pulled me out of the ranks. He didn't pick on anybody the same way he did me. So for instance, I'll give you an example. When we were in the mat room, he, everybody was paired up with people of similar stature. So meaning somebody who weighs about the same, you're approximately the same height. And we were doing a scenario where we had to practice flipping an assailant over our shoulder and getting them on the ground and then kind of handcuffing them. So he pairs everybody else up with somebody of similar stature. And I get paired up with the biggest guy in the whole class. He was 300 pounds, 6'5". I'm 5'5". So he's a foot taller than me. And in training, I was 120 pounds. So... I had to flip this guy who is way above my weight and everything. And he tried to be as gentle as possible over my shoulder, but he had to do the same thing to me. So I was being flipped from six feet, five inches over his shoulder. And he was being as gentle as possible, slamming me to the ground. And I was being knocked out of air every single time he did this. And I had to get up and do it again and do it again. So he put me in these situations that were just kind of unethical if you really think about it. Like he put me in these situations that everyone else was paired up to train so that you don't get injured and you don't get hurt. And I was put in the situation where I was being slammed by the biggest guy. And then we would put on padded suits to practice punching, wrestling, hitting, all these other techniques, these fighting techniques, self-defense techniques. And he would put me against the biggest guy in the class as well. So I'm getting pounded and I'm just deflecting them as much as I can. I mean, you even though you have a helmet on that's completely padded, when someone isn't punches you, it like jacks your head up. I mean, you see stars, your neck's going every which way, and you have to do this over and over and over again, and it until it's the training's over. What was the pairing with the other female person that was in the training group? Was that a similar sort of body type matchup? Correct. Correct. So she was, so we had some, we had some very small guys in our class. Like we had average guys and we had some small guys, probably they were my size, five, seven ish, maybe a little bit taller than me, skinny, maybe a little bit heavier, but they were, they were tinier guys. So I could have easily been paired up with one of those guys and been completely fine. But he paired me up with the biggest guy in the whole entire class. So those are kind of the things that I talk about. I was picked on. But there's also, um, and I've just done the conversion, 300 pounds is about 135 kilos. Um, 
So I had to do the conversion because, you know, you guys do. Oh, well, I I don't use pounds. Yeah, I don't know kilos. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the American problem over here, right? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, so, um, but some would also argue as, I mean, isn't that just putting you in a realistic situation? I mean, you're not always, if you're out there, protecting the president you're not always going to be having someone that is same but same stature as yeah. yourself like isn't it more realistic to train to worst case scenario and therefore you're more capable to handle everything like why does that make him why does that turn it into a picking on situation I mean why don't you just go well he obviously thought that I could handle it I must have been his star student <laughs> right I think Honestly, I think you are right. So I totally agree with what you're saying. First off, let me start with that. I think that what he did, I'll explain why I definitely think he was picking on me. But what he did was he did prepare me for real life, real life at the White House, which you're exactly right. I could be in any situation having to drag this guy who's double my weight. But again, you usually have a partner and you usually have somebody who can help you do it as well. And this and all these other scenarios, I was by myself. So it was a little bit being picked on. And the reason I say I was being picked on is because there are some other incidences in the book where I talk about how I did something for my team. We did the shootout and I, I, we had these semi-automatic guns, which means they are basically paint guns, but they're in the shape of a bullet. So the tip of the bullet has paint in it. So they hurt really, really, really bad when they hit you. You, if you've ever been hit by, been hit by a paintball, This hurts even worse because it's smaller and just super fast and powerful. And the guys used to shoot me in the butt all the time with that. But I would, I was leading the group and we had to shoot this guy at the top of the stairs because he was shooting us, right? It was a shootout and we had to man the team. And I ended up, long story short, I ended up shooting him and he had been shooting at us before. But when I shot him, I didn't know it at the time. I shot him when he was unarmed. So outside the guy, the technicians praising us, telling us we did this amazing job. And then he turns around and he goes, but officer Lesby has to go write a memo because she shot an unarmed man. And everyone's looking around like the guy was shooting at us. And I get what he was doing. Again, he was trying to teach us that in real life, there's going to be situations where police are going to be in these situations. Where we have to really understand and know what our assailants holding. Like, are they holding a weapon? Are they holding their keys? So I get again what he was doing and he was really training me for this. But with his mentality of when I first entered that he wanted to kick me out because I wasn't, I didn't look like a typical secret service officer. I already knew that he was putting in me situations that were amazing training for me so that when I was, I was actually more prepared in real life, I think than other other people were. So I don't Mm. hate him or regret what he did to me because in my mind, I think he prepared me for real life. So I totally agree with what you're saying. But, but at the same time, it's training. So you want to learn the technique correctly because if you don't, you're going to do it the wrong way and you're going to end up getting injured. I mean, thank goodness I didn't break a bone, pull a muscle, anything like that. Thank goodness I was okay. But I, that's why you pair somebody of similar stature together during training because you want them to not injure themselves and hurt themselves. What were the guys saying that were in your training class? Were they witnessing this and agreeing with you or were they just like hundred oh, percent they were agreeing with me but they they were not going to say a word because if they did they'd get in trouble they already nicknamed me talk back barbie for a reason because i was the only one standing up to this technician who was so mean and so i they're like they literally would look at me and be like lauren please just shut up 
please just keep your mouth shut. They're like, please just, let's just get through this training and not write another memo. Oh yeah. I'd be in there writing another memo. And they're like, can you just not keep your mouth shut? Come on. So they supported me and they tried to be as gentle as possible when we go through any scenario. But at the same time, they wanted me just to freaking shut up is all they wanted from me. <laughs> and I wasn't good at it. So they're like, you're just getting yourself Why in more you trouble. Just shutting up? Do, you, do you think if you had shut up that he would have eased off on you? I don't know. That's a good question. I have no idea. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. But in the end, graduation, I proved to him that I could do it. And I think he was beyond shocked. And he actually pulled me aside at graduation and gave me a backhanded compliment telling me that he never thought I would graduate. But congratulations. That's what he said. He told me that at graduation that he never thought I was ever going to make it through training and I was never going to graduate. But congrats on you. And, and I walked by with, and I was like, well, was that a backhanded compliment or, but I took it with a grain of salt and I said, Hey, he was complimenting for me for the first time in four months. I'm happy. (laughs) (laughs) So what's the, once you've graduated, what's the, um, what's the process? Do you go, is there like a delay? Do you have to go do a whole lot of sitting at a desk and doing an admin role first before you sort of get out there standing at the White House protecting the president? Like what's the, what's the usual course? So at graduation, you're assigned your post. So you go to either the vice president's residency, foreign mission branch, or the White House. And I was assigned to the White House. The majority of trainees are usually assigned to the White House because it's a bigger parameter. And you immediately go and do your job. So that's what you want, though. You want, I'd say that the White House is sort of, yeah, that's what you want. Well, there's more people, there's more action, you get fence jumpers. There, it's more of a bigger parameter. So you have yeah. just so much more going on there. The other residencies are way more laid back. They just don't have the same capacity. It's just so much smaller. There's nothing really happening there. There's not parties happening there. Foreign dignitaries coming and visiting usually aren't happening. So it's just, it's a lot more laid back at the other posts. Okay. And, I, and I'm aware that you're not going to be able to go into specifics of procedures and protocols and stuff for obvious reasons but I'm surprised that you said you get like fence jumpers like you hear about occasional mm-hmm. ones but is there a lot yeah there's lots I was never really? I would I never was lucky enough to be on the side of the the fence where there's a fence jumper because people you actually get to pull your weapon you don't get to shoot obviously but you you get to pull your weapon on them and they they lock down the whole front lawn and or south lawn whichever one they jump over usually they always jump over the front lawn but 99% of the time, they usually have a psychological disorder or mental disorder, or they're on drugs or something along those lines usually is what ends up happening when they are a fence jumper. So they man that, they take them down usually immediately, and it's, it's cleared. They get arrested, obviously, and it happens multiple times. So when, when I was there, I think we had about four total fence jumpers when I was working there, but it happens all the time. Unfortunately. Wow. Yeah. The dogs must get a good workout. Yes, they do. <laughs> they get to chase them down, right? <laughs> Taking them down. Bam. So, <laughs> so what's the reality of working in the secret service? Is it, is it, cause I've heard, um, and I'm going to get a name wrong, but I listened to a podcast with, uh, is it Ali Al 
Pomparius. Oh, oh I know who you're trying to say. Out. I'm so bad with names. I'm probably the worst. Oh, uh, no. I think I'll that I'm just the worst. <laughs> no, you're fine. <laughs> Did you say your name? What was that? Did you say your name properly? Oh, no, I did not say the name properly. Oh, I can't okay. say it. Anyway, I listened to I listened to a, an episode with a, of a, a a podcast episode with another Secret Service agent. And she was saying that reality is literally, um, I think, and she I think she was an agent because she was going overseas. But she was saying literally, you just stand there watching an event for yeah. you know days yes. on end, and yeah. So nobody, so so people never realize that when they see all the movies and all the amazing shows and books that they read because everyone's writing all the excitement. So all those 25, yeah. 30 years that you're working for the Secret Service or FBI, what are you writing about? Well, you're writing about the exciting times, the fun times, right? Well, that's the whole funny part about my book is I'm, I'm doing a whole different take. I'm talking about what you were talking about. It's the, it's the falling asleep on post. You're bored. You're doing crossword puzzles. You're reading books. Of course, you're getting caught and writing more memos, but there's you're just so bored. You're sitting in a box Wait, protecting the president, which is super important, but you're waiting for something to happen. Now, if you're waiting for something to happen, and let's say you are busy, that means people, there are terrorists or there's bad things happening at the White House, which means your life is at risk. So it's better to be bored because that means the president is safe. But if you're if there's a lot of action going on, that means you're at risk. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm. So it's kind yeah. of like a double-edged sword here where you don't want too much excitement because that means you're at risk or the president's at risk or the White House is at, is at risk. So being bored is a good thing. So that we played tons of pranks on each other. We would call each other on the phone and do like conference lines. We would watch DVDs on DVD players. <laughs> so this is a whole different take on the secret service, like behind the scenes, basically of the crazy side of the secret service <laughs> that no one ever How sees. Long, you mentioned you mentioned falling asleep on at post, which is probably the biggest no-no I would say. Oh, you know? oh, if you get caught, you're in so much trouble. So much trouble. But it's shift work. So let's say I went to the 6 to 2 shift, so 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. And then they're like, hey, Lauren, we need extra bodies. You're working the midnight shift. That means I would have to come in at 1030 at night to work the midnight shift, which is till about forget what it was, 6.30 or 7 the next morning when I had already just worked. So you have to force yourself to go home, eat something, take a nap so that you can go back to work. Your body is exhausted. You are so tired. You're exhausted. It is really difficult to stay awake. And then at night, it's midnight shift. So just imagine nobody's in DC. So it's really boring. There's nothing going on. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a whole different side of the Secret Service than you've ever seen. But I wanted it to be funny. I wanted people to be able to laugh at the Secret Service and understand that with every job, there's ups and downs. And I just wanted to show the downs of the Secret Service. <laughs> the funny side of it. What was the, um, like, I would imagine that, that it was a really tight unit, like a really tight mm -hmm. sort of. Yes. What was the reality like living in that? Because you, were, I'm assuming that you would have been. Were you when you were on? Were you able to go home, or were you sort of state when you're stationed somewhere? You were actually like at a equivalent to like an army barracks or something. If I when I was at training, you mean? 
No, no. When you're or at the White House, the, job. the White House, I was able to go home yeah. every night. So after shift, so if they put, they might have pushed me four hours over, and I'd have a sixteen-hour shift or something like that. I was always able to go home. So that's the other thing. If you got pushed extra, so you always had your eight-hour shift. But if you got pushed four hours over, you know, you're that's a twelve-hour shift. That's a long day, and then you have to come back and do it again the next day. So it's just, it was very hard. But you always got to go home. So I got to go home every night. It was just a long night. By the time you got home, you're exhausted. You're turning around. You're going to bed because you have to turn around and go there again in the morning. So it's you, just a lot. It's a lot. Were you always stationed at um, DC? I was. So I was always stationed at the White House. My biggest uh-huh. regret with working with the Secret Service was that I never took a trip. So I was newly married. I had I we actually I actually got married and went on my honeymoon while I was working at the White House. So I turned down a lot of trips because I was newly married and I didn't want to go and travel. And I was afraid. Yeah, but I was afraid. Exactly. I was afraid if I like left home, what was going to happen? And, you know, all the affairs and everything that are going on. I'm not saying you would have an affair, but I'm saying. No, no, no. I know what you're saying. But that I found that out like way later after I turned down trips. I was like, oh, well, I guess that's a good thing. I didn't go on these trips because (laughs) I'm just kidding. Because you're in these hotel rooms and everything else. But I turned down the trips not because of that. I didn't know that at the time. I turned down the trips because I was wanted to be at home. And I didn't want to be up and leaving all the time. But that was my one regret. I wish I had taken a few of those trips because they got to go on some exciting adventures. And when they would come back and tell me what they did and where they went and what they got to see. Because they did have free time when they were up there. They didn't just work the whole time. They had free time. It was just really cool. So I really regret not doing that and not being a bigger person back then. But then, you know, this is only, I can only do what I know now. You know, I can't change the past. So I can't have a full regret because I did what I thought was best at the time. So. Were you ever in a situation where the boredom turned into excitement, where you had a situation arise that you had to deal with it? So we were talking on a conference line and I was on the other side of the White House and we had a fence jumper at the time. And when that happened, they are, of course, getting all excited and talking about what's going on. And some of the guys actually got to get out of their posts and pull their weapons on the guy. And, you know, they're get- and I'm sitting here listening to it all over the radio. And I'm sitting here thinking, are you kidding me? All this excitement is happening while I'm here. And I am on the whole other side of the White House. So I'm sitting there <laughs> Watching bored. Watching Yeah. I'm like, well, I'm going to go back to my James Patterson novel. And when they get done with this and they arrest the guy, they'll call me and tell me what happened. And that's exactly what happened. They called and told me everything. And they're like, this is so cool. Listen to what happened. (laughs) And lo and behold, I get to hear it secondhand and I don't get to experience anything. That's what's so funny because I didn't get to experience anything at the White House. Everything cool that happened, I was either off shift or on the other side of the White House or not not even remotely nearby. (laughs) How long were you in the Secret Service for? I was only there for a year and a half, but I got picked on so much. I had enough to write a book about. <laughs> <laughs> but the but that was that was only during the training, or was it after the training as well? Oh, this goes through training. It goes through me working at the White House, all the stories I have to tell at the White House, and then it goes into my government consulting jobs as well. So I went. Uh-huh. In, I worked for a law firm for four months. Then I. Lost that job, which is, that's a really funny story in the book as well. And I went and worked for government consulting using my clearance up in DC. So I worked 
for... So what is government consulting? Because that seems like it's a really broad umbrella saying I'm not yes, going to, like... it is. So I worked, I worked in different avenues, but I worked with... I was a government consultant, so I was a private company, but I got to work with the CIA, FBI, right. Department of State. I got to work with those people. I get to work actually at the CIA headquarters. I got to work at the National Counterterrorism Center, which is takes on and puts terrorists on the no-fly list. So I was working at the place, which is called NCTC, where they we would put actually input terrorist database into or terrorist information into the terrorist database, which is called TIE. Okay. So I did that right. as well. Yeah. And you're able to talk about that. I don't need to delete anything out of this episode. No, no, no. I'm totally able to talk about it because that is that is the spectrum. So basically, NCTC was created so that it could be a center hub for all the agencies to be able to communicate. So it's a right. hub for where, so we would have unclassified cables, secret cables, top secret cables that would come through. It was a hodgepodge of all this information. So I'm not talking about anything specific. I'm just talking about what the organization NCTC was designed to do, and that's what they were designed to do. So CIA, FBI, Department of State, would get we would get all these cables. We would decipher them, and we would input the information about the terrorists into this database, which then Department of Homeland Security and all these other agencies were able to gather that information and be able to tell if that person's a terrorist or a threat or not. So, it was, I mean, it was interesting. What... Is that peek behind the curtain? Because <laughs> it's like taking the, it's like, you know, taking the, was it the blue or the red pill or whatever yeah, you took in the Matrix? Right. can't remember. How much has that changed your perspective in regards to life? Because once you put that, once you take that genie out of the bottle, you cannot put that back in. Agreed. No, I totally understand. So it does make you think completely different about the government a little bit. And I know that people know that even if you're just local law enforcement, you're not action all the time. There's funny things that happen behind the scenes, but it does make you kind of wonder, are they taking the job seriously? Are they actually able to protect the president of the United States being in these jobs? And then you're thinking about the NCTC where there were mistakes where people were put on the no fly list that, that shouldn't have been because their names were similar. And they had to go, you have to actually go through a process to get your information taken off of the no-fly list because your, oh, your name was similar. And yeah. So there's a process to actually get your information taken off of that. So you just get to see a whole different side of the government. It didn't really skew my mentality about the government at all. It just showed you a side that wasn't as serious that you think. You think the government is all these almost like robots doing as they're told and working behind the scenes and getting all this stuff done. But in reality, I think that it's not like that at all. I think that there's a lot of way too much downtime with the government, to be honest with you. It's very slow moving, slow paced. How does one find out that you're on a no-fly list if you've accidentally <laughs> been when you put go on to it? The airport. Like, <laughs> that's how you find out when you're going on a flight and Joe Citizen I mean. says you can't like <laughs> sorry Joe Citizen, you can't fly, you're on a no-fly list. Listen, it is pretty rare and almost impossible that that happens, but it does happen. It is very, very rare. But I mean, that the stories I've heard, it's only been because they've been caught in an airport and they're like, what are you talking about that? I have nothing to do with this. This, this is not me. And it was because they were put in the system incorrectly. Yeah. 
So I don't know how what else you would find out. to untangle yeah. that. Oh, huge nightmare. Just, just the legality of the paperwork to get through and getting off the no flight is, is horrible. Absolutely horrible. Yes. Oh my God. The stress. Imagine if you were mm-hmm. accidentally put on a new job was flying all the time and required you to fly. <laughs> and then you get caught in this situation. But I mean, that's the, that's the comedy behind it. I want people to be able to laugh with me at me. I want them to be able to laugh at all the situations. And I want them to know that not everything in life is always serious. Laughter is such yeah. a good medicine and laughter is so important. Even in a serious career as the secret service, if you can laugh at yourself, you're going to get through anything. Why did you not go back? Cause you're not in, I don't, I don't know what you were going to what you're doing at the moment, but mm-hmm. why, when you left the secret service, why didn't you go into the FBI? Cause that was your initial. Correct. I was not, I didn't have enough experience yet. So I could have gone into the FBI after government consulting. They need at least yeah. three years at the time they needed, I could have changed by now. They need at least three years of work experience to be able to apply. So I could have gone into the FBI, but because I worked for the Secret Service and I saw the moving around, the shift work, missing out on holidays, how hard it was to have a true family life. My days off would be canceled. I could have an appoint- a doctor's appointment. My day off was canceled. I had to cancel the doctor's appointment and I had to go into work instead. I could have a night out with the girls planned. My day off was canceled. I have to go into work and I have to cancel all my girlfriends. So well, taking the just- president takes priority. Yes, always. Yeah. And so sometimes if I was doing something super important, well, I thought it was important, like going to college football games, I would call in sick and be like, I can't come into work. <laughs> oh <my> God. <laughs> and, and they hated that. They would despise you if you called in sick. But I would call in sick and I'd be like, sorry, calling in sick because I don't want to leave this football game. Thank you. <laughs> Lauren, you're not painting a really good picture of yourself as a Secret Service agent falling asleep on post, calling it sick. I was horrible. I was horrible. That's why I wasn't cut out to do it. I was just like, listen, if I can't have a social life, I am not going to thrive in this environment. I have to quit. So I left. I need to have some cocktails. Yes. Oh, over cocktails, this book would be even more exciting. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. So what what are you doing now? Because what made you write the book? So now I'm working part-time for an energy company here in Georgia. And what made me write the book? Five years ago, my dad started talking to me again, kind of how he did when I was 10. What do you want to do with your life? What do you want to be when you grow up? And he was telling me I have a really cool, diverse resume. He goes, Lauren, you need to write a book about all the stories you went through and what you accomplished with your life and how you're just, you're kind of an anomaly. And I laughed at him in his face. And I was like, dad, I'm never going to be able to write a book. It's too hard. It's too daunting. It's too much work. So fast forward a year and a half ago, we were down in Florida, just chilling on a family vacation. And I just started writing thinking, I'm just going to put down memories and ideas and stories that I remember. Cause I was, I didn't think I remembered anything. I ended up putting down a bunch of stories and from there it didn't stop. It just rolled into something else and something else and another story and another story. So then I merged it into chapters and then I hired a professional edit. Once I was done with my part, I hired a professional editor. I had my sister help me edit as well because she was a news reporter. My sister was. So mm-hmm. she was really good at editing. She helped me do that. Hired a professional editor. He helped me make it even better. And then we worked together. I edited his stuff 
and we worked together and that's when, and I published it this year in January. What made you want to self-publish rather than going to a publisher? I self-published only because if I had gone through all this and then went through a publisher, it could take another two, three years to be picked up. But also the biggest thing I've learned, and I didn't know this this at the time, but the biggest thing I learned was when you self-publish, or sorry, when you go through a publisher, you actually lose a lot of the rights to your book. You lose a lot of the royalties from your book as well. But so they can do different versions. You lose the rights to that. And I didn't, I wanted to have the full say of what I did with my book and how I went about promoting my book. And I also wanted, when I self-published, I was able to get books made. And so I have them sitting here in my house. So when people order through my website and want to read the book, I personally sign every book that's ordered through my website and I personally mail them out from my house. So I have a boxes of books here in my house. And if I went through a publisher, I mean, I guess I could have them in my house as well. I guess I'd have to order some, but my biggest thing was, I felt like I lo- you lose your rights. Cause I've talked to publishers who've gone both routes and they prefer you mean the self. Oh, sorry. Yes. Uh, yes. Authors. You're exactly right. I'm a You're exactly right. I've talked to multiple authors and they, they've gone both routes and they actually liked the self-publishing route better because they had more say in what was being done with their book. What, what's the ultimate now in terms of the book? Would you like to, would you like to have some TV or movie rights to it? Like what's the next step that you would love? Yeah. So that is my biggest focus right now. I have been networking all the time with TV producers, just movie producers, local producers here in Georgia, somebody who can maybe has a little niche that can get the word in. I actually just did a podcast where a guy was telling me he has some connections with people who... Oh, fantastic. Yeah, in the like movie industry and all that kind of stuff. So with that being said, he also said he's done some playwrights himself. So with that being said, that's something I'm looking into and we've been talking and trying to get information about where we can go from there. But I would love to turn it into a series, a movie, something like that. So I don't know if you've seen Miss Congeniality or Legally Blonde, but those those are the two movies that I compare Talkback Barbie to. And if you can think of both of those combined together, you've got Talkback Barbie, the Secret Service Edition at its finest. So... (laughs) What are you doing now with yourself? So you've, you've published the book and you're promoting the book, but what mm-hmm. else are you doing at the moment? So I work just part-time. I have one son, so I'm busy with him all the time, camps, work, but I really am focused so much on promoting this book. I've been networking. I've been doing a million and one podcasts. I've been trying to just network and get the book out to as many people as I possibly can So that, because you don't get anywhere if you don't get the word out. I've joined yeah. an app called Can't Clubhouse. Yeah. Oh. I don't know if you've ever heard of the app called Clubhouse. I've joined yeah, that app to try I to joined, be networking. I, I, I jumped on and then I wasn't, I don't know if I like it. It It is very difficult. It is a lot of networking. I've been doing a lot of Instagram stuff, meaning I post myself trying to get followers on Instagram. And then I, I've been researching and reading up on how you get more followers. And it's about responding on other it's people's Instagrams. It's and, a nightmare. It is. I hate it's so social much media. Work. I hate it. So do I. I, never, I know. I was never. I was never on Facebook or Instagram or anything. And yeah. then, um, about four months ago, I was like, "Oh, I need to do it for the podcast." 
Yep. But I just didn't. I I never. I'd never wanted to do it because I wasn't interested in what people ate for lunch. Yeah. So I didn't want to no. say of the sandwich. Fiona, I completely <laughs> agree with you. Seriously. And I hate I'm it. The, I do it all wrong. I'm sure. I hate it. I hate it too because I sit there and I, I watch all these people and then you really truly know them in real life. And I'm sitting here thinking, you are being so fake right now. Like I yeah. heard what you just said about your husband and now here you are on Facebook. <laughs> Yeah. And, well, and the funny thing is, like, line. literally I joined it and then two weeks later I watched um, The Social Dilemma and I was like, damn it, yeah. damn mm-hmm. it. Yes. No. <laughs> I'm sucked in now. <laughs> the problem is you do get sucked in and I get oh, and I'm yeah. really sucked in because of my business promoting my book. So it's constantly yeah. typing up things, promoting things, mostly on Instagram, but I'm having to do pictures, quotes for my book, all this kind of stuff to keep the people flowing, to keep the people interested, to keep the people engaged and it's it is a lot of work being a one woman show over here it is a lot are you on and LinkedIn? honestly that's a full-time job are you on linkedin i am i'm on every social media platform right now because i TikTok. find that i get a I, oh yeah don't get we'll leave <laughs> that on one TikTok. alone yeah. we'll leave that one alone for many reasons yeah. um, <laughs> <laughs> um i find that i get the better better response and um better uh views and and whatnot through linkedin but i've been on linkedin for because of work i've been on linkedin for a lot longer i know i I need to promote more on linkedin i I always forget about it because instagram you can connect to facebook and twitter with one post and then i always forget to go on linkedin i've got to be better about that and more diligent i see we're not see in australia twitter's not huge we don't really do Twitter, so it's mostly just Facebook and, and Instagram and LinkedIn. But yeah, um, I don't do much Twitter yeah. either. <laughs> I agree with you. So how All can people get your book? Is over my head. <laughs> I know, right? How can people get your book? My website's the best platform to find everything about me. You can p- find past photos from me being in the Secret Service. You can order my book from there. You can find all of my social media platforms. It's www.talkbackbarbie.com. And you will find everything you need to know about me on my website. Perfect. Thanks so much, Lauren. It's been such a joy speaking with you. Oh, my gosh. This has been so much fun. I have enjoyed laughing with you, and this has been amazing. Pleasure. Everyone go out and get the book, and I'll link all the uh, social media stuff in the show notes of the podcast as well. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 